Anybody heard the phrase fake news? Me, me, me. <laughs> yeah, I think we probably all have. And it's actually been around for a while, surprisingly, but was first coined by Trump and now used by so many people to describe what seems to be an American phenomenon. As we record this introduction, we're in the middle of the second impeachment trial for Trump, where he has yet to concede the election and his defense is still built partly on the big lie. We have a feeling that this debate about truth and facts and fake news isn't over yet. Boo. Right? But even if you're familiar with these concepts, do you know how to spot fake news? And do you know what to do if you are suspicious about what your friends share on social media? How do you push back in a productive way? And how does critical thinking play a role in all of this stuff that we have with this overwhelm of information that we've got going on? That's why today we bring you a conversation with Professor Emily Bell of Columbia University School of Journalism that'll give you the tools to fight for reality, for facts, for science, and be on the factually correct side of history. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that eases you into uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and how to be more anti-racist. Or should we try the new tagline, which is the show that helps white women use their privilege to dismantle systemic racism. We're your biracial hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. Professor Emily Bell, we are so excited to have you here. Would you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? So excited to be here. Thank you. So I'm British, which you may have guessed by my accent. I'm a professor at Columbia Journalism School. I've been there for about 10 years. And I run a centre called the Tau Centre for Digital Journalism, where we look at the ways that technology are changing journalism, sometimes for good, mostly for bad at the moment. But my background is that I'm a career journalist. I spent most of my career, so a good 25 years of it, at The Guardian in London. And I was a reporter, then I was an editor, then I was a commentator, which is one of those kind of like progressions. And then I ran all of their kind of digital, digitally stuff for about 10 years, where incidentally, we introduced podcasting in about 2006. And in fact, we were in the Guinness Book of Records for having the world's biggest podcast at one time, which was the Ricky Gervais Show. So I love podcasts and I particularly love your podcast. I'm very pleased to be here. Oh my gosh, we just finished watching Afterlife and it's just Ricky Gervais is fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then speaking of this progression towards digital media and how it could go all wrong. Mm -hmm. I feel like we're just... We're talking to the exact person we need to be talking to about understanding what is happening in our country, in the world today, and this notion of fake news. Can we talk about the impact fake news has had on our society? Like, when did it start and the term and all of that stuff? It's Yeah, so it's, it's a really interesting one, this, isn't it? Because it is a kind of phenomenon that has always been around. You know, in fact, you can trace it back you know, not just sort of decades, but like almost kind of hundreds of years. And in fact, at the turn of the 20th century, so about 120 years ago, even the industrialized press would run stories that were completely untrue on its on their front pages. Famously, in about, I think, sort of 1908 or something, there was a, a paper that ran a series about Martians being found on the moon, describing these green people in quite detail, because they just wanted people to buy their paper. This is papery clickbait. And as, as competition hotted up and people became slightly less naive about the fact that actually there weren't people on the moon, um, you started, you know, the market started to create sort of truth-based press. So 
all of the towns in America that used to support maybe two or three newspapers, if you were really political or if you told lies all the time, you tended to lose your advertisers and you tended to lose your subscribers. So we went through a bit of a lull where the only fake news you would see would be if you were, say, a woman or a black or brown person, pretty much everything in the mainstream media that you saw about yourself was fake news for a good 50 years. So that's the other thing, which is, you know, we kind of think about, oh, this golden era where all news was great and full of integrity and we just forget that it looked past whole communities misrepresented other communities and so I don't want to kind of I don't want your listeners I'm sure that your listeners particularly will not think this but to think you know we had this amazing period of you know really fantastic journalism but I do think in like about 2000 when I was at the Guardian sort of trying to figure things out on the web We thought this is going to be amazing. We can democratise media. We can bring more voices in. We can really start to think about how journalism can work for many more communities. It can be a whole revolution for communication. And for a short while, it has been that. And let's not forget that either. I mean, you know, I'm not casting aspersions on you 2 I'm just saying that maybe the BBC in 1965 would not have commissioned your show. <laughs> it's possible now to hear things that you just would not have heard before. And then something starts to go wrong. So your question, Sarah, about fake news is, I think that this had been happening for a while. If I was going to put a date in it, I would say 2012 was very important because that is when Facebook put the share button on its mobile platform. And people that I know who work in fact-checking have said, you know, we were pretty busy between 2000 and 2012. And then in 2012, things just went off the hook. And I think we hit this critical mass of people using social media discovering you could use social media, not just to, you know, post pictures of cats and stuff, but to actually seriously start to manipulate the political process, uh, target certain audiences with both advertising, but also fake news, fake messages as advertising. And in the 2016 election, when Donald Trump was elected, you know, the lid came right off the can of worms. And suddenly people were like, what? There were Russians targeting like African-American communities in Detroit with phony ads. How could this have happened? Now, quite a lot of us have been saying for several years before that, this is going to happen. You know, Facebook doesn't have any guardrails on it. Google doesn't really have any guardrails on it. Look at what's on Twitter, you know, kind of every day of the week. We know that somehow this is like, this is not a good environment. And then suddenly we had proof that actually kind of, you know, all of these things were there and they were having a real effect in the world. And then the last four years, well, it has not gone any better. I love that history and that perspective because I don't think I realized all like the holistic picture of what you're talking about when it comes to fake news. You know, I feel like that phrase in my brain was so associated with the Trump administration. And I understand that, you know, historically media has been an institution. And then as you say, it got democratized, but I really didn't think about the fact that even mainstream media would have had fake news. And I always, you know, assumed that this was about social media and Trump calling things out. So that was great perspective. But in this context, you know, why is it important that we learn how to spot it? 
Well, so, I mean, two things, one of which is it's getting harder and harder to spot. That's the other thing, which is, you know, we've done a lot of research at the town centre on what do influence campaigns look like? How can you find them? We have pretty smart computer scientists and journalists working on this. And the number of ways in which you can now create false impressions around something. So let's take the crisis that we have, we maybe still are in, but the crisis we've been in certainly for the last 12 months in America, which is this idea that somehow the democratic process did not work, that the election was rigged, that there were problems with mail-in ballots and that the election was stolen. All of those things are not true and they are provably not true. But when you look at how the narrative started, it might just be a hint in a Trump speech. It might be something that Tucker Carlson comments on Fox News. Then it's a discussion in a closed Facebook group. Then it's a whole hail of headlines on local papers. Well, you might think they're local papers. Actually, they're probably not. They're probably one of these networks that we've been looking at, which is like, you know, fake news, which are paid for by political operatives to start to seed and wash these narratives through whole populations. And, you know, it's been this real demonstration of how democracy as an idea and a set of institutions depends on one thing, which is all of us agreeing that it's important and that those institutions work. And once you have somebody like Donald Trump deciding to deliberately undermine those institutions simply by spreading misinformation. And you have all of these systems that work together. So social media, mainstream media, I don't think you can really separate those two things anymore. And you get this narrative which washes through all of these different groups in society, these people who are mostly talking to each other, even though they might be geographically separated, they're very ideologically similar. And you fan those flames into an armed insurrection, which ends up with five people dead on Capitol Hill. And I did not think, even though I knew the gravity of the situation at the beginning of 2020, that I would be saying those words to you right now, because the way that words and impressions and stories and narratives can now wash into the real world is truly terrifying. And if you live in any other part of the world other than America, you've probably experienced that already. And now it's our turn. You know, I want to get back to the big lie in a second, because I think that's so important and something that I personally want to unpack. But, you know, I was thinking about when you were talking about Trump and, you know, how he says something and that starts to spread, you know, small and then larger. And I was thinking that I subscribed to a newsletter during the Trump administration that would count how many lies he would tell per day. And but the amount of lies by the end of day thousand, whatever, is so large. It's so uncomprehensively large that any one human being is telling this many lies. And we're, you know, just being fed lie after lie to the point where as media consumers, you get so exhausted knowing that you're being lied to consciously knowing and yet people are believing, people are acting on these lies. So what I want to ask is, what is the mental toll, you know, when we're being fed these lies continually, and we're trying to parse through the lies, but your point to the fact that it's hard now, it's hard to know when we're being lied to in some ways, and what is fake news, and what is actually true? What's that mental toll on us as consumers of media? 
I think that's such a great question. And again, if you look outside the United States, if you talk to my friend Maria Ressa, who's a great campaigning journalist in the Philippines, who's been really pursued by Duterte throughout the last four or five years for her journalism against him. And she has this, she describes really acutely what it is like to live in a society where everybody is brainwashed into, you know, this kind of almost like sort of religious cult-like belief in a political figure. And a little bit like religion or fandoms of any type, you don't want to hear that you can't be persuaded. So if you don't buy into it and you're on the receiving end, as you say, of all of the lies and you see people buying into it, it is it. First of all, it's really exhausting. It's really exhausting, I think, for everybody. It's particularly exhausting for a journalist, I think, working in this environment because it's your daily reality. And then you end up in a place which is really dangerous, which is, you know, the Philippines is in the same place that Ukraine is in, maybe the same place that Hungary and other countries are kind of moving towards India at the moment is right there which is once you lose the ability or once large populations lose the ability to care about what is true, what is not true, then, you know, their energies go into their frustrations, you know, their conflicts, that it is a kind of rage creating machine. That's the other thing, which is, you know, when you experience all of this and you become untethered from reality, you will do extreme things because you can't, put together in your mind that actually you might end up in jail for the rest of your life. I don't know how many people thought that when they went to the Capitol to protest on behalf of Trump, you know, and then you get another part of the population which doesn't believe anything. And you end up with a kind of cynicism about it, which makes it very hard then to cut through with important messages that people need to you know, live their lives properly. And we've had this extraordinary collision in the last 12 months of coronavirus which somehow has become a political issue, (laughs) as well as the election campaign sort of conflating. And you see half a million people dead in a country which is, you know, literate, it's post, you know, it's a literate society, it's a rich society. And the mental toll, I think, is, I don't think that we have any idea what the long-term effects of this are. Just the psychology that countries go through, that are put through this, I think are profound and long-lasting and it's not something that most people and I'd say most people I don't say that lightly because I think a lot of people in America have experienced something like this for a long time but I don't think it's, it's something that most people in America have not had first-hand experience of and I think we'll just be picking up the pieces for a long time. You know you pointed to some other countries and I think you know in the same way that when the insurrection was happening, there were people who were pointing out saying like, look, if we saw this in a third world country, like we would be issuing opinions about it. And yet we're not treating it the same way in our own country, but it does happen in other countries. And as you said, this idea of the stress of not being able to understand truth or in Thailand, you know, you can't speak the truth against the king and the royalty there. These sorts of things have happened elsewhere. Has there ever been a case to your knowledge where people have recovered, a country has turned the corner and how does one, you know, what does that look like potentially? Well, so I may get into trouble for saying this, but Germany is a country that experienced all of this between 1918 and 1939, 1936, you know, the rise of Nazis in Germany. Joseph Goebbels, uh, who was Hitler's propaganda minister and really kind of 
created the modern Nazi party. You know, isn't it awful saying the modern Nazi party that actually kind of the modern Nazi party is alive and well and out there on the streets of America. So, you know, the, the original playbook for this. And there are many things which are very imperfect about Germany. It's not a great place to not be white in. It suffers from all the same kind of issues that lots of Northern European countries suffer from, but it has a functioning democracy within the lifetime of, you know, people. And it's come from being a society of sort of a genocidal kind of maniac manipulated a population into the most grotesque crimes of, you know, just sort of unspeakable crimes. And now it is, you know, a country which has a thoughtful democracy and it had to do an awful lot of work to repair that. It put in place things like speech laws that America would never tolerate or think were appropriate. And I did actually get into a bit of an argument with a couple of people the other day who were going, like, don't point to Germany as a great example. It's actually kind of, it's a, it's a racist place. It's this, it's that, it's the other. And I was like, all of those things are true, but they're also true of many other countries as well. And I think about my dad, who's sadly no longer with us, but somebody of his age in Germany, which is an hour's flight from where I grew up, would have been in Hitler Youth. So I think we have to say it is totally possible to do it. But the reconstruction that you have to do at a so civic level is really significant. You know, you do have to kind of, and Europe post Second World War is, a, is an example of that. And also, you know, some of those structures put in place have really frayed just recently because, again, you know, kind of the economic pressure you have, displacement, and, you know, you have a, a sort of a refugee issue in, I mean, you know, the idea that Nazi Germany would actually be the country in Europe that now says, we're not going to put limits on immigration, you know, come on in. So it's possible. I think, you know, it is possible to recover. But I think that we tend to think about it as fighting misinformation, or if we could just be more media literate, or if we could do X, Y, or Z. Sometimes I think it's just easier for us to talk about those things than talk about the real problems, which are racism, income inequality, geographic inequalities, you know, there are all sorts of things which have fed into this. And so you really do have to, I think, sort of tackle everything on a sort of multi-pronged front. And then I think, you know, you can definitely recover from it, but you have to, you know, the whole of society and particularly the leadership needs to want to do it. Mm. And considering we got rid of someone just now who was propagating it, we do have, you know, some steps to unwind. And I agree completely, you know, we just did a conversation about what makes people believe in conspiracy theories and everything you said, it just, there's a huge, we have to remember that at the end of the day, the people creating it, unless it's the bots, you know, we're humans. And so the people who want to believe in it are those who are not happy and want to find a, an explanation for it or a cause or a purpose. And so I agree that we do want to, I guess, address it all together. And also, you know, a lot of these people, it turns out in the capital are not in fact deluded, misled individuals. They're pretty wealthy white men. <laughs> you know, that who have kind of sort of jobs and status in society, etc. And I think to some extent felt they could do what they want and their grip on, you know, being in control of society was being loosened as it should have been. And those are, you know, those are going to be painful revolutions. And I think, you know, kind of acknowledging that that's what's happening is part of getting through to the other side of this in better shape in actually kind of saying, well, let's build some new institutions and new practices. And, you know, I don't get to vote in your elections, so I can say this. <laughs> but, you know, it's great to see an administration coming in where you do have people who are both 
you know, not men and also not white. And if you go back to 2016 and think of all of those pictures of the Trump administration, you know, this was an administration that I think was defined almost more by masculinity than anything else. I mean, this was a gender kind of war at the outset. And, you know, it's great that we have moved beyond that. The question is, you know, what happens to the people who really, in fact, what happens to the 70 million people who voted for Trump? You know, what happens? Some of those people will, I think, we're looking out for their own economic interests. And some of those people have a very strong ideological commitment to America being a very different place, probably from the place that we would like to see and thrive in ourselves. You know, I want to talk about the election for a second. And I want to go back to Nazi Germany, which is something I never thought I'd say, you know, as a reference point. But and it all ties back to the big lie, because I think You know, we've heard this phrase more and more in the media now about the big lie and the big lie around the election, which is what you had pointed out, you know, that the election was rigged, that there was voter fraud, that Trump is the true winner, all of those things that are demonstrably false. Yet we still hear this big lie. We're still, you know, this Trump's impeachment defense is based on this big lie. So and despite all the truths to the contrary, this is still being discussed and perpetuated, but it is such a key tool of authoritarian leaders. And we saw that in Nazi Germany. So can you talk to us a little bit about that and why the concept of the big lie is so important in authoritarian regimes? And what's the real issue with it happening here? So I'm not a political scientist, so say, but, but I think, you know, there is a really simple playbook, which you can see in every single territory and country where you have authoritarianism and it's two-step. And the first thing is to invert the truth. So tell the big lie right out front. And there's a journalist called Peter Pomerantsev who has written a brilliant book called This Is Not Propaganda, which is partly about his own experiences in Ukraine growing up and then fleeing to the West. And he says the dirty joke told by the authoritarian is a really interesting sort of gateway into the big lie. So Putin, you know, would say something really off colour or, you know, Donald Trump grabbing by the pussy, you know, and Bolsonaro in Brazil is the absolute past master of, of saying outrageous things, usually about women of a sexualized nature. And he says, the dirty joke is like, I'm not like those. I'm not an insider. I'm an outsider. And you break those taboos and then you see what happens. And, you know, it kind of electrifies the pace. And then you move on to something else, which is, not within the norms of accepted political discourse, which is something completely untrue. And then you see how people react to that. And it's really interesting. So you invert the truth. You start to say, I'm going to drag. You are a billionaire property developer with a big career in media who has lived exclusively in New York. And you tell the whole of the country that you are an outsider who is going to drain the swamp. (laughs) And it becomes, you invert the truth. And then the next thing you do is you discredit the press. So you say, you know, Hitler said, you know, the Lugan press, you know, the kind of the same as the fake news media, you know, Duterte in the Philippines uses the phrase prostitutes, you know, against sexualized language, undermining language. And you activate, again, your base around this idea that anyone who might be in the media is out to get you, is telling untruths. And so that two-step process happens everywhere. 
And it's just remarkable. When you go back and look at any regime, it's just always there. There's always press criticism and undermining the press. And it's always preceded by an inversion of the truth. And then once you kind of get away with that, you can just carry on. It's like, you know, you sort of, and the moment at which people fall from, you know, off the top of the very big lie, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they go on for decades. I mean, you know, Putin has, uh, you know, sustained himself in Russia with the I'm great for you, you know, need this kind of leadership. It's going to be interesting now you have Navalny and you have the riots on the streets. And that's the next part of this, which is, you know, if you have a militarized police force and you have got them broadly on side, you know, there really isn't sort of much that can actually touch you at that point. But I think that's where it's like to follow up on that. And that is not democracy. Like, let's just lay that out, that that is an authoritarian regime. And we need to not be okay with that because we are not an authoritarian led country. So this is the absolute point, which is, I think in America, there's just been such a shock that you guys talk about democracy all the time. Not you guys, but you know, like America talks about democracy all the time. And yet it is very suspicious of what I would call democratic institutions. (laughs) So it's not actually a big fan of big government or, you know, whatever kind of civil servants. And Trump is anti-democratic. That's the thing. And somehow I think this logical step, which goes, he's been elected So he must be pro-democracy. That's not right. That's actually not true. Where lots of authoritarians start is by being elected, by being really popular. And it does not mean that they are pro-democratic. So Trump is anti-democratic. The fake news kind of operations that have surrounded him are anti-democratic. Everybody who has told a lie, deliberate lie about the voting mechanisms is anti-democratic. And that's, again, huge psychological, we talk about the sort of psychology of this, that's a big psychological leap, I think, for the, if you like, the gatekeepers of democracy in the US to make, which is to say we have anti-democratic authoritarians in our midst. And there's still this, well, yes, but they've been elected. So Marjorie Taylor Greene's been elected. So she's part of democracy. It's like, well, hang on a second. She's actually here to destroy democracy. (laughs) And I think in that sort of twilight zone, we have the same problem with the media. You know, Fox News is not, you know, the media, journalism should be an accountability mechanism. So you have, you know, democratically elected politicians over here. You have the accountability press over there. They should ask questions. They should find out stories. It's something that keeps things in balance. But once you have Fox News aligned with an anti-democratic president and you have Facebook, which doesn't really care whether it doesn't define itself as pro or anti-democratic, allowing anybody pro or anti-democratic to use its ad platform, then you have a very powerful alliance of forces, which is extremely difficult for these sort of balancing institutions to have any effect on. And so from a media point of view, that's really what we've been looking at, which is all of these things that should be checks and balances, including technology platforms who talk about democratizing information and including the news, which is meant to be an accountability mechanism. When those kind of give way, then you have, you know, then you get Trumpian outcomes. I have to say it is really refreshing to see or hear press briefings again that, you know, that actually involve real questions and real answers and science and facts. You know, Sarah knows these are things that I just love so much. And I didn't know I loved them as much as I did until they were removed. You know, absence makes the 
heart grow fonder and work. Like it should be boring, right? Like this is that's the thing. I just love the idea that government could be boring and the government press conferences could be boring. It's what a great relief. And as you say, I it's like watching the West Wing all over again. Yes. <laughs> it's so great. Romanticized notion. <laughs> And you were mentioning, you know, with this new administration, we do have this sort of return to boring on that front, right? We have an actual, you know, press secretary who's going to talk to the press. We have a president and vice president who will be talking to the press and not hiding kind of like a petulant child if things don't go their way, right? Or planning their, you know, I don't know. I have two young kids. I see that. It's the exact same thing. You know, my six-year-old does the same thing. Anyway, but, you know, and we're talking about how, you know, there's typically an accountability press, right? And a democratically elected official, you know, and all these balances. So from where we have been the past four years, and moving forward, what do you think are those, you know, larger changes, the macro changes that this administration and, you know, in particular, sort of how journalism and the press should be viewed and the role of media in getting us past where we've been in, you know, sort of the quagmire of fake news all the time, all the lies to that balance? Right. I hope we're past it. I'm not sure that we are. So one thing is that the press did not do a great job throughout the last four years. So that mental tension that I was talking about between, hang on a second, he's the president, he's been elected, we need to represent him in this light, versus the voice, you know, just behind you going, he's a dictator in the way in waiting. So the press should take quite a bit of criticism for normalising um, Donald Trump and some of his practices. And really only at the end, you started to get people sort of calling him out. And I would say the media now extends to big platforms, whether they want to be included or not. So one of the big changes that has taken place is that the control of a lot of these decisions has gone from one set of gatekeepers maybe 10 years ago to a new set of gatekeepers now. So there's a reason, right, why Ted Cruz wants to yell at Jack Dorsey, who's the chief executive of Twitter, and Mark Zuckerberg, who's the chief executive of Facebook. There's a reason why Ted Cruz wants to yell at them on Capitol Hill rather than getting the editor of the New York Times in to say, why did you write that headline? Because some of this is, I think, beyond the immediate control of the press. So I think we can reform ourselves, we can rebuild our newsrooms if we have any money. That's another consideration that we have to think about. We need to be more diverse, we need to be more reflexive, and we need to be more reflective of the communities that we're within. We need to do a much better job of calling out, you know, authoritarian behaviour. But all of that, you know, doesn't really help if our stories and our commentary are lying around on the bottom of the internet whilst everybody is looking at TikTok videos of, I'm not quite sure what they'd be, I mostly see TikTok videos of dogs being shouted at by their owners. I don't know why. <laughs> you know, there is a real problem with the attention economy and what rises to the top. You know, how do we keep people properly informed when there are so many vectors for things which distract and entertain and inform in very different ways and also mislead. So I think it's everything really. It's, you know, we need better journalism. We need more local journalism. You know, the disappearance of local journalism has been a real problem when it comes to addressing communities as a whole, I think. And, you know, the platforms that have replaced them, like Nextdoor, you know, I'm on my local Nextdoor group. It's great because it's the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I believe that there are other Nextdoor communities that are not so great. But those can be entirely free of actual kind of facts 
or news it's you know people talking to each other in sometimes not very helpful ways so you have this whole sort of information ecosystem now that you have to think about which is operating in a really different way from how it was operating even a decade ago and how we you know manage that through guess regulation through companies doing the right thing, through recognizing what we're dealing with, that's going to be a really interesting process. Yeah. And it leaves a lot up to the individuals who lead those companies and all of that. And speaking of individuals, I think something that you are familiar with and Misasha as a lawyer are familiar with is, you know, the First Amendment and this idea of like free speech and you're stifling Trump by taking him off, you know, Twitter because we all have the First Amendment behind us. (laughs) Sarah knows I love this question. I love the Constitution. Because we've never talked about it on the show, but like we need to discuss this just briefly because I really want to get into how to spot fake news too. But the reach and also the limits of the First Amendment. Can we just discuss that once and for all so people know that it's not just like you still can't shout fire in a crowded movie theater? Like, can you guys both just address this, please? What the First Amendment does is it says Congress shall pass no law that interferes with the right to free expression. There is a big gap between that. I mean, it also protects platforms from saying that somebody can't publish on your platform is not a violation of somebody's First Amendment rights, <laughs> and particularly not the president who, you know, let's be clear, he is the government at that point. <laughs> so, but this idea of speech rights, I think is really interesting, which is the ability to override other people's speech rights simply by allowing kind of amplification, chilling speech, you know, the sort of the intersectionality, if you like, of speech rights. I think an area where we have not spent nearly enough time thinking about, well, what is also the right to hear? You know, and nobody's stopping anyone's free expression by saying we're going to take your Twitter account away. You know, that's like you're not being locked up for things that you think or things that you say. You're just you have a company saying, you know, we don't want this kind of stuff on our platform. That's not new. That's ages old. Question, are these companies now so big that they constitute a public sphere in a way that other media hasn't? I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? I'm kind of you know, I want to hear real lawyer on this. Well, as I explained to Sarah, they taught at Columbia the First Amendment is a separate class, separate from constitutional law, because it is such a difficult amendment to understand. And I think, and Sarah knows, this is my pet peeve with people in the Constitution, is that people adopt what they like from the Constitution and leave the rest behind. And they also interpret the Constitution however it works for them and their particular argument, which I understand. Being a lawyer, you want to make an argument, you want to use the most persuasive things, but there are certain things that are true and there are certain things that are not true. And I completely agree that on a private business platform, there are terms and conditions of use and you violate the terms and conditions of use, you get kicked off, especially if you are in a role where you have the ability to incite people to act in a very different way than if you're like, you know, Jane Smith down the street. I think that there are measures that are in place that protect free speech as a whole, but also want to protect our country or, you know, the citizens in our country. And you're right about what you hear, because where do our rights end, right? What is the sphere of our rights? And I think that people see a very large sphere when it works out for them and a very narrow sphere when it doesn't. And again, private industry, you know, Sarah, I sent you 
on Twitter, they had mentioned, you know, everyone who is so upset about Trump being banned from Twitter are those same people who were behind the cake manufacturer who was not going to, you know, make gay wedding cakes. And I think that you can't be selectively for certain things. And also you really need to think at the reasons why and the meaning of free speech. And what is that? It's not a blanket thing and it is private industry. I think that's, yeah, I'm really glad I asked an actual lawyer because that's a much better answer than I would have given. But something that strikes me coming from outside the States as a journalist, which is you're incredibly grateful that the States, the United States has the First Amendment because it really did protect whistleblowers, publishers of material, you know, my home publication, The Guardian, when they published Edward Snowden's disclosures, the government came around and made them chop up their computers in public. <laughs> um, and having that protection is not nothing. It is really, really, really important. But the free speech, I call the free speech absolutists, which are generally speaking like me, except they're men. So they're quite a lot of middle-aged white men who are you know, free speech, and it's very, it's important. I think it's exactly as you say, when you think about it broadly, because it favours you, you interpret it in one way. And then you say, but there are lots of people who just feel that they can't ever express themselves because they will be harassed or doxxed or, I mean, this is something that drives me nuts about the platforms, which is all of these chin-stroking experts The moment there was blood on the floor of the Capitol building, they were like, oh, yes, we should switch off his accounts. Now seems the right time. Actually, communities, women, you know, again, you know, black and brown people have been saying for some time, you need to do something about this because this is causing real harm to us out there on the streets. You know, this is causing harassment. This is causing people to be attacked. And I think that, again, it's just sort of, you hear it over and over again, I think, from platforms saying, we don't want to restrict people's speech. I think it's good. They're thoughtful about that. And then you get the, because we don't, that's a very slippery slope. And it's like, well, okay, so where on the slippery slope do you think we are right now? You know, where on that slippery slope were we on the 6th of January? You know, because it felt to me like we were not exactly at the top of the slippery slope of what speech might do. And I've had lots of people in, you know, particularly tech execs saying any kind of rethinking of these rules will leave us in a much, 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 much worse place. And I'm like, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that it could get much, 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 much worse. And, you know, interpreting the First Amendment in a way that protects everybody's rights is clearly the, I mean, and I think, you know, law's not done a bad job of that, but we have to take a look at what having completely unregulated markets, particularly for social platforms, really means. And what it really means is the people with the power and the money can squish and bully and marginalise the people who don't have the power and money. And that, I think, is, you know, something that sort of actually the First Amendment was not designed to protect. And they can lie. They can tell absolute fabrications and be left unchecked, issue opinions as facts and all of these things. Something that, you know, Natasha, you said about, you know, when you're sort of Donald Trump or whatever. So one of the things that I'm really would really like to see addressed is how these platforms actually work much more in favor of people in power. So, you know, you get, you actually, Donald Trump violated Twitter and Facebook's guidelines a long time ago, and particularly this year, you know, particularly around coronavirus, particularly around the election. And yet they were so hesitant to do anything about him. Whereas in fact, you know, 
being the president shouldn't give you more rights on a free speech platform. It should actually give you fewer rights. You should be more controlled. There ought to be more checks and balances to your power. And yet that's not the world that we have at the moment. Yes. I remember reading an article about Trump's, the original sort of Twitter ghostwriter for Trump or something who had seen his creation sort of spiral out of control when he realized, you know, Trump and whoever was mining his Twitter account, you know, had taken that X steps farther. But, you know, and I have had disagreements with attorneys about the role and scope of the First Amendment, to your point. But those attorneys that I've had that disagreement with are all white and male who feel, you know, strongly about the limits of free speech. And so I think it works for some people and it doesn't for a vast majority of people when you think about an absolutist free speech look. It works if you have the microphone, if you have the megaphone, then it works. Very true. Yeah, and especially in a country that is continuing to propagate propagate the divide, like the rich keep getting richer, the powerful keep getting more power. Like we love this system apparently of pure capitalism and the pursuit of power and influence at all costs. So that makes sense. You sure do. <laughs> Speaking as a European. <laughs> and that, you know, that is part of the American persona as well. That's part of what has made the country very successful. It's part of what's made the country very diverse. But it's also, you know, there's a great law called Gresham's Law, which is a rule in finance that if you don't regulate a market, then bad money always drives out good. And if you think about Twitter and Facebook and Google and what have you, they're really monetized speech. Every time we click on something or we exchange comments, we make money for them. And it's a totally unregulated system. And just like the financial system, if you don't have regulation, then the bad actors, the ones with no ethics, no morals, no sense of truth, that will always swamp and drive out the good. So, you know, so many of these kind of simplistic arguments about Oh, you just need more good speech. You know, it's just like, it's not that simple. You've made a market which you have let run wild and it's designed to do exactly what it's done to get people riled up, really hyper engaged, you know, kind of like feeling very passionate about things. All of that is actually designed into these systems. And then the oops, when it goes not actually about sort of passion for sneakers or cats or something entirely benign but your passion for far right-wing politics and being a racist then it doesn't then it's sort of it's there's no answer to that there's nothing in the policy of these companies or wasn't until very recently that actually addressed that and so it's you know kind of it's a bit wearying I think for people you know it's certainly wearying for black and brown people and also wearying for you know women as well to just keep saying we told you so you know we could see this coming we knew that this is the world that a lot of people have been occupying for a while and you know now you're occupying it too Let's get to some of the juicy parts, because I know some people, because this has already been awesome, I also know that people want to know what they can do differently. I do. Stop. stop, Get off Facebook. Sorry. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I won't let Zuckerberg hear this episode now. No, but for real, you know, you said it is harder even for professionals to spot fake news. What are the questions that we need to be asking of ourselves, of other people in this realm? Like, is it even possible? Where are we at spotting? How do we spot fake news? Well, so I think the first thing is that, you know, on an individual level, what are the things that you can do? Don't share stuff that you see in a nanosecond (laughs) without really checking it or don't share it at all. You don't need to share that piece of information. 
something else which is actually really remarkably effective it's very exhausting to do but you might think about it if you're in a group chat or a family kind of Facebook group and you see something that you know not to be right is actually correcting people in line even if they really react very badly is much more effective than things like fact check flags so if you posted something on Facebook saying it's a really good idea if you drink bleach and it will sort of protect you from coronavirus which is like it's a good idea to say you know that's absolutely not true and even though people will say I know it is true because Donald Trump told me it's true Seeding, just sort of having that in a dialogue is actually important. I think it's too exhausting to have to do that work all the time. (laughs) But it's worth bearing in mind that I think even if you feel, well, this is futile and I should give up on, you know, kind of my racist uncle or whatever, it's actually, as long as you can do it in a civil way and say, you know, you're wrong about this and here's why you're wrong. You have to be sort of, you know, warriors for the truth. And it does have some effect. What else can we do? I think look at where the source of your information is coming from. There are so many things that flash past you online, you know, catching them. You can feel like you've seen a story. And in fact, it's kind of fascinating sort of research. We're researching these fake news networks that that pop up like your local newspaper. And they put out like hundreds of thousands of stories. They automate them. And I was like, nobody reads this. Nobody reads this. And somebody who's an expert on these kind of methods said they don't have to read them. They just have to see certain words. So you'd see words like voter fraud over and over again in headlines. And you don't, you're not quite sure where you saw them. You certainly didn't read the story, but it kind of sticks. So one thing is just to be a bit mindful about some of those messages and think, why am I seeing this? Who wants me to see this and why am I seeing it? So that's the other thing. And then the third thing I would say is, there is a great danger that you just become as bad as the conspiracy theorists. So that point that you made, Sarah, earlier on about what do you do when you don't believe anything is you have to kind of also don't be too sceptical. You know, don't be sceptical of everything. Pick the sources that you think are good. Make sure that you, you know, check those, read them, forgive kind of small mistakes, but, you know, exclude things which are consistently misleading. It's a lot of work, but, you know, it's worthwhile because there's a lot of good stuff out there. You know, as I say, sort of, you know, when I was growing up, you wouldn't have had awesome people like you doing a podcast I could have listened to, which has all of this great stuff in it. You know, find those sources that you trust and follow them. And then the other thing I would say is report when you see crap on platforms, report it. And I know, again, feels really futile, but, you know, it actually does over time start to have an effect if you have everybody saying this is not true or flagging something as not true then you know come the companies eventually have to do something so there are little things that we can all do every day that actually and then the other thing is you know switch off your phone (laughs) stop looking at it go outside talk to your neighbors like get out into the real world occasionally and i'm sure everybody does that. i'm sure it's actually just journalists like me who don't do that (laughs) it's a really good it's so bad for your mental health to be bombarded with this stuff all the time it's it's exhausting so remember that you know there's a whole real world out there well and i think that ties right into what we said before which is that there's a psychological basis for people who are more prone to conspiracy theories and feeling disconnected and so it does actually do us all good to unplug and and make sure that we are mentally fit as much as we can be during these times especially by unplugging you know you mentioned a couple times here that there are certain sources that are more trustworthy Can you give us a couple of examples of places that you think are these like trustworthy, more fact check places that we should all have on our feeds? 
Well, so what you should think about, I think, is not always political orientation or what I like or, you know, kind of what I don't like. So I'm very typical in that I'm a typical elitist, you know, kind of media type. So I love NPR and I love The Guardian because, you know, I worked there for so long. I still write there. I, my husband worked for the Financial Times for about 100 years. So I also like, you know, there's kind of like, I have a media, media diet. But I would also say, you know, there's blog done by a guy down the road called West Side Rag, which actually is where I get so much useful local information from that, you know, find local sources as well. And you can kind of talk to people in the, in the sort of comments there, you know, when their main motivation is to get you high quality news, generally speaking, even if you don't really agree with those organizations, then you will find something kind of useful in what they're putting out. And generally speaking, they will be telling you things which are for the most part true. You know, where does something like Fox News fit into that? I mean, you know, it's not really kind of a news channel as much as it's a political operation these days. And I think that's where you have to just be careful about, you know, do I know this source? Do I trust it? See what other people who you think, you know, are invested in truth are saying or recommending. You know, it's a bit like kind of, you know, there are certain people you always go to for book and podcast recommendations because you know they have great filters. So that's the other thing. It's just finding sources and also find sources that reflect your community. You know, they're kind of so exciting. I think the most exciting thing about media at the moment is, you know, I was talking to a journalist on sort of Scalawag the other day that is a black run online magazine in the South that's been very active in Georgia around the elections. And you know, those are new voices that bring something really different to journalism that can connect to communities and audiences that were just completely left out by media in the, in the past. And really, support when you find your people in your community, really support those outlets. Um, I know that this is the same motivation which has ended up with QAnon because it's like, you know, you change this slightly and you say, find people who are like you, et cetera. But that truth-based element of it is so important. Do they employ reporters? Do those reporters generally report things which are true? You know, follow them, pay them. It's so interesting to hear you say that because most of the, you know, when you search, you know, the news bias or when I'm looking for the most, what I thought was neutral, yeah. Like you said, it's actually the political neutrality. But what I'm looking for truly is what are the fact-based, truth-based operations? Right. I wonder if there is something. I mean, I know Snopes. I always always go to Snopes when I see like... Snopes is great. We love Snopes. They're great. Right? Yeah. Those sorts of fact-checking yeah. websites and organizations are the things, you know, and what what's your thought on like AP.com and like... Well, you know, kind of like the AP, Reuters, all of those news agencies, you know, if they return things which are completely untrue all the time, one of the really important things to understand about a lot of the information ecosystem and particularly professional news wires is that they inform a lot of financial markets. You know, they, 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 it's actually people kind of lose money on false information. So when you see Bloomberg or Reuters or the Financial Times, all of those businesses are giving people who really depend on true stories information that they can act on. So there's a very, there are high stakes attached to them. AP has a network of reporters around the country like no other organization. They don't, you know, they're not going to benefit if their reporters keep reporting garbage. And I think this is the other thing, which is, you know, it's so easy to fall into this, oh, the press is so untrustworthy, you know, kind of 
only reports garbage. And you will always hear about the mistakes and reporters, editors are human and they will make mistakes. They will fall for exactly the same kind of BS that you might fall for on your social media feeds. And we have to be a bit forgiving of that. You know, there are honest mistakes. You know, there are honest mistakes and there are big lies. And I think, you know, the press can always do better, but there are truth-based organisations out there. And, you know, there are plenty of them and they're not that hard to find. And I think when you hear people saying, oh, that's just the media, they lie about this, they lie about that. Think about all the things they haven't lied about. You know, think about how much you know about, you know, the deaths in your postcode or local nursing homes through COVID through reporters. Think about the big stories like I mean, you know, Watergate's a long time ago, but, you know, think about what we now know about the attack on the Capitol and who's done that reporting. You know, think about the things that you do know about the world that you wouldn't have come across. One of the exercises I give my students is bring me a piece of information and tell me where you got it from and where it came from. And it's really fascinating because, you know, they're very smart, my students, so normally they get this, but occasionally they'll say, well, this came from a press release that was put out by the Department of Defense or Department of Health. I say, where did they get the number from? Where did that data come from? And once you start following down the sort of the route of where does, how do we know that this fact is true? You know, those are kind of interesting exercises to see whether or not what you're reading and what you're kind of looking at is really, really true or if it's a version of somebody's kind of truth. And so as you say, Snopes, is a, that's the kind of work that sleuthing work that fact-checking organisations do. And you can do a bit of that yourself these days as well, which I think is always kind of, it's actually quite good fun once you get into it. Don't fall down the rabbit hole, but it's quite good fun. I love that because it pushes us to be intellectually curious, right? And I think we are so sometimes lazy about where we get information or, you know, we won't check the source or, you know, it's so easy, as you pointed out, to hit that share button, right? If I was on social media, I'm sure I would have done that. But our family, we're not on social media for the exact reasons that you pointed out. But I think also to what you were saying about not being too much of a skeptic to actually have that trust and faith that there there are fact-based, truth-based sources out there. It might take some more work. It might not be the first 12 things that pop up in your social media feed or the webpage that you've bookmarked, but they're out there because my natural tendency, as Sarah knows, is to be an extreme skeptic about everything, hence why going into law worked out so well. But that is a great reminder, I think, to take away that we also, there are those sources out there. And hopefully those are the sources that we will be able to get back to more and more for our actual truth and facts. I really hope so. I was going to say, you know, when you talk about the social media like that, I realize what responsibility every single one of us has to take for our role in this greater society that we have now created and we find ourselves in. And if that means, you know, I used to get all my news on my Facebook feed. I just didn't, it was easy. You scroll, you see all the news sources come up and I stopped, you know, I think sometime in the last couple of years, I just, it was painful and hard, but you know, I stopped there and I figured out how I was going to get my information because I was teetering on the edge of needing to choose ignorance at the expense of, you know, because otherwise I was getting overwhelmed and exhausted. And so, you know, getting off social media as your news source or finding it and, and pausing, actually reading the article. I love that you said, don't share, because you know what, if people want to find it, let them find it for themselves, but stop propagating and paying into this machine that is perpetuating the divide. You know, I love this idea of take the moment to challenge something that, you know, to be blatantly false, especially I would say if you care about the person. I think if it's like a tangential connection, 
it can be exhausting. It can be really mentally too much. Yeah. But I love these tips because none of this is in some ether, some silo that we have no control over. You know, I felt like for a while, there's no way that I can influence the fakeness of, you know, the opinion that is coming out of Fox News type of network when it's not, it's saying it's news, but it's not. But I realize we do. We all have control over what we give our money to and what we give our eyeballs to and how we choose to take in this information and share it. So we need to play our part if we want to return to a fact-based democratic society, not, you know, teeter back into any authoritarian regime. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that we really want the leadership in this country now to have a bit of political will to carry out bigger reforms. And I think they know what those policy reforms should be, and they need to be about supporting grassroots media organisations and good reporting at local level. And they also needs to be about regulating the platforms. But then on a daily basis, it's like... Don't be an asshole online. And B, I think, you know, I tend to be on the extreme sceptic end as well. But you have to, you know, good faith is really important in all of this, is to believe that there are people who are doing what they are doing in good faith. And that, you know, the whole of whether it's the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Guardian or, you know, your local newspaper or whatever, you know, there are people there with good faith doing good work and you know, kind of give them your time if they need your money. Jeff Bezos does not need your money, but if you need your money, then give them your, you know, give them your money and support. And if there's one silver lining from this whole sorry affair and the last four years is that I think everybody is now really scared. I think people were still thinking, well, this is a blip. Trump is like not kind of, it's not something that we're going to have to encounter again. I think people are now thinking if we don't really start to act as a much more you know, holistic way and start to really think about how we are divided and how media plays into that. There are so many people now working on that problem who just were not working on it and not putting energy and thought into it five years ago. That I have some, I'm pretty optimistic that we can actually, you know, in five years time, we'll feel much better about this whole episode. I'm hoping it's like a close call, not the beginning of the slippery slope. I've become slightly weary about this idea of fighting misinformation. I see it as a bit like the war on terror, which is it's one of those arguments advanced by people who want to distract from some of the real issues. And also it's not something that you're going to win, like a fight against. Misinformation is not going to turn up at Versailles and say to Mark Zuckerberg, come and sit in my train carriage and we'll sign an agreement that the war is over. It's like the onion headline you know, terror declares victory in war on terror. I feel like set it, but the approach we get, which goes, this is the output of a broken system and a society where we need to do some real healing. If we get the political will and we get the collective kind of responsibility and care for each other, and we, you know, start to kind of pay attention to the things that really matter, then hopefully, as I say, it shouldn't be a fight. It should just be something that we can, you know, all kind of help each other through. I love it. Is there anything else that we haven't asked that you want to talk about? No, I feel like I've talked too much and you guys have asked great questions. This has been amazing. It's really, really awesome to speak with you. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist identity affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. 
Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Woman Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 